to the sixth chapter of Revelation, Revelation chapter six. If we were going to measure the fruitfulness of our lives as believers, how would we do that? Right. If we were trying to figure out, okay, how fruitful have I been as a witness for Jesus Christ, as a uh, a light for Jesus Christ in the world? How fruitful have I been? Do we only track the positive results of our witness? I think we do. I think we um, normally determine whether or not we're effective or fruitful by results, right? As maybe as a church, as individual Christians, we track the wins, right? Is that how we know how fruitful we're being if we're measuring from God's perspective, though? Do we ever think of our rejection as part of our fruit, our suffering as evidence of His presence and His Lordship in our lives. Is a negative reaction to rejection, a negative reaction to suffering, is that a godly one? Have we ever truly come to grips with the fact that we are called to suffer? This is so clear to us in Scripture. Suffering cannot be a surprise to us, no matter what we might face. Our hearts are deceived when we view our suffering automatically as God's punishment on us or evidence of His lack of love for us or of our inability and our shortcomings as though everything is supposed to go well and supposed to go easy. Beloved, God is on His throne tonight. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the author and the finisher of our faith, the beginning and the end, meaning that everything in between exists under His sovereignty, and works towards His intended purposes, even the daily circumstances of our lives, including our suffering, including the rejection we may experience as believers. Our hope is fixed tonight, but the realization of it will not be in this life. God has not promised us final resolution here, but He has promised us final resolution. God is aware of all that takes place in the universe He's made. The culmination of this universe is still in His hands and we are called to wait patiently for Him to bring all these things about and focus on His calling to us despite our rejection as the church. There will be suffering and trials in these days. Listen to me for a second. For the most part, our message will be rejected. Most people on the earth will not believe the gospel. There will be suffering and trials in these days, but not because God isn't control or isn't in control or doesn't love us or doesn't have the power to take care of us, but because he isn't quite done yet with the world. As the only true and just judge, the one who is seated on the throne and the lamb will make all things right. And put an end once and for all to sin and the suffering it causes for his people. Until that day, we wait patiently while trusting in his word and obeying his call. Let me pray and we'll begin. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ and all that is fixed in your hand through him. Who never fails. God, help me preach tonight, please. Help me speak clearly. Help me speak the truth. Guide me, O God. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Let me not speak out of turn. Be with me. 
be with everyone who's come tonight, Father. Help all of us hear. Help all of us understand. I thank you for those that are here. And I pray that you would have your way in us through your word. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We made it down through verse 8. Let's pick up in chapter 6 here in verse 9. I'm going to read down through verse 11 just to begin. Remember, we're in the middle of the seven seals here. Verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The first four seals John saw the Lamb open in 6, 1 through 8 revealed the world's sufferings from the perspective of God's decree of judgment from heaven or in heaven. Tonight in verse 9, the fifth seal describes the response of slain and glorified saints to that suffering. The first four seals describe the church age and the suffering and martyrdom of God's people as God's judgment has begun, in fact, to be poured out on the earth. Verses 1 through 8 affect all people throughout the earth at the very least in a general sense. But here, the reaction to this comes specifically from Christians who were affected by this judgment on sinners in the form of persecution on them. Notice the main verbs. These types of cues are important in Scripture. The main verbs used in describing two of the woes that the four horsemen bring on the earth reappear in verses 9 through 11 to describe the persecution of the saints as a part of what these four horsemen are doing in the world. Slay in verse 4, slain in verse 9, kill in verse 8, killed in verse 11. Those are the same words for a reason. And when we read the word slain in Revelation, it should already have a context for us. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But the judgments these horsemen are pouring out results, one effect of it, is the martyrdom of faithful believers who held to their witness or are holding to their witness today in verse 9. The overcomers in the church that John has been referring to so far, by the way. That's why you, you can't separate the rest of Revelation from the letters to the seven churches. They're always there. They're always being spoken to. It's always relevant for them. They're always present. One of the features, one of the key features of the book of Revelation are its hymns. These hymns that we read throughout it. These hymns tend to summarize the themes of the preceding section that's just before them. Six verses 10 and 11 are one of the hymns in Revelation, which means we should read it as a continuation of the text in verses 1 through 8. They're linked. So not only are the last three horsemen images of persecution, but so was the first. Those sufferings, these sufferings are not meaningless. They're ordained by God. They're part of His plan for Christians to live their lives in the same sacrificial spirit and with the same sacrificial expectations that Jesus did. Since chapter 6 is flowing out of chapter 5 chronologically, we haven't broken this current cycle here. John's exhortations to the believers back in chapters 2 and 3 to endure suffering and to overcome in faithfulness, now they make even more sense. Here's why. This is what they're experiencing. This persecution, 
was in full swing in many of the areas, not all of them, but many of the areas when the book of Revelation was sent to the seven churches. Notice that John sees one altar in heaven. It's a single altar all throughout Revelation in the heavenly sanctuary. That serves the purpose of both altars that we have in the earthly shadow of this sanctuary. Hebrews 8, 5. Uh, Hebrews 9, or Hebrews 8, 5 and 8, 9 through 11. Sacrifice and incense. This, this one altar in heaven completes both of these functions. And just as the riders on the horses were given a crown, a sword, authority to kill by the lamb, these martyrs are also given something from the lamb. They're given a white robe in verse 11 that if you remember, was promised to those who conquer through their faithfulness to the truth for which they will be martyred in many cases, all the way back in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. The same white robe is in view. So when you get to verse 9, it's not merely an angelic decree from heaven about suffering that is coming on the earth. This is a human response to judgment from the earth, from those who were in it. This hymn in chapter 6 is a lament. It it picks up on that tradition we've seen in Scripture with those two words. How long? How long? This is a lament all throughout Scripture. So John sees Christians who died as the result of martyrdom, having received their heavenly reward, and now they're crying out for vindication. Look at 10. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We're, We're not disembodied, ethereal spirits in heaven. These are souls, but they speak. These are people, right? These are the saints that were killed or will be killed as a result of the second horseman's attacks in verse 4 and those of the fourth horseman in verse 8. I think this refers in general uh, to all the saints that are killed or have yet to be killed, as the text says, for their faith. We see this refrain repeated in chapter 13, verses 15 through 18, chapter 18, verse 24, chapter 20, verse 4. This is a theme in Revelation. They were slain for their faith, and now they're under the altar, meaning they're in the presence of God. They abide in Him. All believers will suffer in one form or another for their faith. If they lose their lives spiritually for the sake of the gospel, that will bring about suffering. That will bring about trial, as Jesus commanded us to do if we want to follow Him in Mark 8.35, but many, we find, will literally lose their lives for their faith in Jesus Christ. What we learn here is that this suffering, this loss of life, identifies us with the suffering of Christ, the Lamb who Himself was what, back in 5.6, slain. That's the context for reading that word in Revelation. It identifies the people of Jesus with Jesus. How does Paul talk about us? We are all like lambs led to be slaughtered. That's part of what it means to be a believer in this world for the name of Christ. Romans 8.36, recalling Psalm 44. All right, This is a part of the experience of believers in the world. And here in Revelation, those who were slain offer up their prayers like incense under this altar... Their lament, right? Asking God to judge and avenge their blood on those who dwell on the earth is the term. The heavenly altar is the one on which the sacrifice of Christ is seen to be made. This is why we see the saints resting under it, right? Under the blood and the provision of Christ, offering prayers to God, their souls eternally protected by Him. It was God whose design tested their faith through suffering, 
so that they might be purified. Remember, that's one of the purposes God has in our suffering is that it purifies our faith, right? The heavenly altar portrays not only their sacrifice, but their prayers as incense that reaches God's nostrils. And as we've seen in Scripture by the time we get to Revelation, motivates God to act on behalf of His people and answer their prayers. Verse 10 is the response, their response to this suffering that's being inflicted on Him. Verse 10 is not a cry for revenge. It's not vindictive. This is a desire for God to manifest His justice. All right, it's it's the same type of thinking that um, we see from Paul again in Romans chapter three, verses twenty five and twenty six. What was the issue there that was threatening the justice, the righteousness of God? God had to act to cover sins by the blood of Jesus to preserve His righteousness. Why? Because in the past He had passed over former sins. It looked like He was unjust and not dealing with all sin. So Christ was put forward as a propitiation in part to answer that, to vindicate, if we can use that word, God's work among people. Here the issue is, God would be considered unjust if He doesn't punish the people that wrongfully persecute His people. And these faithful believers, they don't want that. They don't want God's name to be ran through the mud on the earth. It would be possible if God doesn't act, that maybe God doesn't care about His promises or His name. And these faithful believers, again, they don't want that. These are martyrs. These are not half in, half out. These people bled for the name of Jesus. They want Him to be vindicated. That's why they testify that God is holy and true. They want the world to know that the word of the Lamb was the truth, and people have rejected it. They desire for Him to make known His holiness and His truthfulness in their vindication, bringing these evil ones, His enemies, to justice. Remember the cry. Remember that cry. How long? That doesn't just come from Psalms of Lament. That's not the only place we've seen it. Very interestingly, it's also found in Zechariah 1.12, where this same cry that we're reading here in verse 10 goes up and is answered there. Do you know what by? Four horses of judgment going forth. Meaning, beloved, God has already begun to answer this cry as the four horsemen in Revelation have begun to pour out God's judgment on unbelievers, letting the world know, listen, I've started to unleash the dam and I'm about to end everything. Accompanying then the worldwide spread of the gospel through the church age, which proves the victory and exaltation of Jesus, will be the ongoing affliction and persecution of the church that bears and proclaims that message. But we find in verse 11 that the days on God's calendar, if we're wondering what's the time frame on God's calendar, do you know how the days are marked off to the end? One by one, every time someone is killed for the name of Christ. I would encourage you to read these Stories. Read the reports. Subscribe if you can to Voice of the Martyrs. Understand what's going on as we speak tonight in the world. Know the names. Know the numbers. Look at verse 11. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So here's a preliminary answer 
to their prayer, isn't it? God has a plan so definite that their vindication is fixed by a number. God has a number of martyrs in His sovereign design. The Lamb will return to avenge the blood of His witnesses just as soon as the last martyr on that list lays down his or her life. Just ponder then how sovereign our God really is. That not one goes overlooked. Not one is unseen. Not one isn't on the list. Not one. Unknown to the world. Fools to the world. And in the eyes of God, chosen and precious and fixed. Time is reckoned differently in heaven than it is on earth, right? That it's, it's, it's not a, it's not creating mystery that just a little while longer. So are we at the, you know, what's, no, a little while, by the time we get to Revelation, we ought to know that's very different from God's reckoning than it is from ours. And how He views time, especially in the midst of suffering. Suffering never seems short when you're suffering. It never seems like a little while when you're suffering. But when we read things like that, we, we can't neglect this already not yet tension taught to us in the New Testament when considering God's timetable for these things. There's an already aspect of our salvation and our inheritance, and there's a not yet aspect of it, and they live in tension. We live in tension, right, between inauguration and consummation. In text, we, we see this all throughout Scripture, particularly for Christians talking about it in the New Testament. Think of how the Scriptures talk to us. In Ephesians 2, for example, we find that we've been raised with Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Does it feel like that to you right now? That you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. When He was raised, you were in Him and you were raised up with Him. Does it feel like that? Were you aware of that when it happened? And there, beloved, in Ephesians 1, we're told that we have been, past tense verbs, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's true right now. But then you read texts like Romans and 2 Corinthians, and we find that we still groan in these earthly bodies, that our flesh still wages war with our souls in 1 Peter chapter 2, that we're more than conquerors in Romans 8, and we're also as more than conquerors in all these things, being led to the slaughter like sheep. At the same time. That doesn't look like conquering. All the blessings we receive from Christ's death and resurrection are ours now, but we have not obtained them yet. Like a will. Right? If my parents have me in their will, I've never asked, because I figured that'd be awkward. You know? Hey, how much do I stand? How much cheese do I get when you guys... You're not going to ask your mom and dad that. But let's say I'm in it. Right? Let's say I'm, I'm, I'm going to get an inheritance. It's mine now, but I haven't obtained it yet, right? Because what is necessary to happen for me to obtain it, thank God, hasn't happened yet, right? So the saints are being encouraged to be patient as they wait for vindication, even though they're glorified, right? There shouldn't, our understanding would be there, there would be no lamenting in heaven. How is this possible, right? Beloved, because as this is being written, there's tension between the already and the not yet. God is talking to us from the perspective of knowing all things beforehand. God is so in control and His Word so sure that He can speak to us as already beginning to reign with Christ. Revelation 1, 9, and so on. 
through our faithful endurance in suffering. That in and of itself is evidence of him reigning. How? Why? Because why are we suffering? Because the four horsemen are riding through the earth, meaning that Jesus has been exalted. It's done. The end is coming. That's why we're suffering. That's the currency God that Jesus is using. Listen, you can endure. Your suffering means I have won. Right? Even now, it doesn't look like it, but I have. Remember, we don't look to what is seen. Right? Hebrews, this, this tension is all through Scripture. We do not yet see everything in subjection to Him, but we do see Him. Right? Eyes on Christ all the time. God is moving history to accomplish His purpose. He is the just judge. We will be vindicated. All that are slain for Him will also be vindicated. So, as they in heaven are waiting, so we on earth are waiting. Listen now to these last verses in chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, crush us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? These verses are not for something before a greater day. This is the day. Right? This is not a preview. This is the day. The great day. Verses 1 through 8 were God's preliminary answer to the cry of the martyrs in verse 10. These verses are the final answer. He's telling them the final answer to their plea They describe the final judgment, verses 12 through 17. They describe the very end. Since we've just been told the judgment pictured here won't happen until the full number of the suffering saints throughout the ages is killed for their faith. As of this time being written, they're not all dead. They're obviously still remaining people to be killed. We aren't done yet, right? God's got a number. And when it's done, we'll be done. Right? That's how sovereign God is. That's how sovereign, that's how comprehensive His sovereignty is. Beloved, there's, there's, you do one of two things with the Bible, I guess. One of many things would be to read things like this and you see that word, the moon will be turned to blood. And every time the moon takes on the shade of red, 75% of American Christians flip out. It's the blood moon. It's the blood. Yeah, they've been happening. They've always been happening. If if you're really locked in to the end, do you know what you need to do? You want to speed it up? Well, you go die. Right? You get to the number quicker if you're serious. Now, this lays us all bare. You don't see me going to die. I'm not moving to North Korea tonight, am I? So I'm not knocking you. But I mean, how serious are we here? We just love to just 
Learn and learn and learn and learn and learn. Nobody wants to die. Nobody. But boy, you, if you can tell me who the Antichrist might be, well then I'm gonna, I'm gonna give all my money to that. I'm gonna watch that. I'm gonna just be dialed into that. You're gonna go die? No. No, 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 no. No. Not doing that. Faithful means like learning a lot. Not, not dying. Nothing will speed up the return of our Lord Jesus Christ more than the spread of the mission and the death of the saints. And, and, and let me just say this. A church not ready or willing to die is always going to be behind God's timetable. Always. How much do we want to be with Jesus? Right? How much do we want Him to return? I've, I've, I've never understood that. I'm sure I've talked about it before. If you have a certain view of the end times, everything that tells you the end is coming terrifies you and makes everybody flip out. And you just have to ask, why are you fighting against things like a one world government? Help it. If it's going to bring Jesus back, shouldn't you help it? Shouldn't we all be like one world government people? If that's what it will take to usher in the end, if that's what we're supposed to be, why weren't we given instructions to contribute to that? Verses 12 through 17 assume that all this persecution has run its course. And when that's done, when God has had enough, all that remains is for his final punishment to be poured out on those who have persecuted his people. And beloved, that will be the end of world history. Notice how the judgments of the four horsemen and the first four seals, if you remember, they affected only portions or fractions of the earth, right? This destruction described in verses 12 through 17, falls on everything and everyone as well as the whole earth and the whole sky. So this passage can't be dealing with just the judgment on a group of unbelievers only immediately before the return of Christ during an extended period of tribulation, since at that point in this view, they haven't yet finished persecuting all the saints. And not only that lets us know that these verses are picturing the very end, the very final judgment. There's also this issue of the great earthquake in verse 12, which also appears in the visions of the two witnesses in 11.13, and in the seventh and final bowl of God's wrath in 16.18. And there it's clearly referring to the final judgment. The great earthquake in Revelation is always linked to final judgment. You have a reference to mountains and islands being removed also in chapter 16, verse 20. The very end, the descriptions are always the same of final judgment. The same horrible event also appears in chapter 20, verse 11. Right? Well, I tried to talk a couple weeks ago about how what, what John is doing is, is that there's, a, there's a, a football game and there are different camera angles of the same game, the same event, happening all the time, and sometimes John is looking through this camera, seeing the game this way. Sometimes he's looking at it from this angle, seeing the game this way. But he's describing the same game in different ways over and over again. He'll go back, then he'll go from there all the way to the end, then he'll start over again. So we see it in different ways so that it always applies to the church. Again, there's a reason every age of the church thinks they are the last generation on the earth. There's a reason for that, because... It's a repeating cycle, beloved. It's a repeating cycle until the very end. What you see in 12 through 17, nothing's happening after that. Right? There's a reason that you don't see the word a third of 
and a quarter of anymore. Right? This is comprehensive in verses 12 through 17. Again, the same horrible event appears in Revelation 20 verse 11. When John sees the great white throne and seated on it is the one from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. That sounds very much like this. Here in what John sees in 6.14, what do we read? Every mountain and island was removed from its place in the presence of the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. In other words, the sixth seal, it's where we are now, carries us suddenly to the end of history, right? To the very end of all things. When, as the author of Hebrews interprets Haggai 2.6 in Hebrews 12.26 and 27, God's voice will shake not only the earth as it did at Sinai, but also the heavens. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removal of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. God's voice shakes everything except that which Jesus has accomplished. G.K. Beale, one commentator on Revelation, notes that The book of Revelation is tying together all the threads of judgment and catastrophe we read in the Old Testament prophets. It's just using those same images, that same language. It's cataclysmic, catastrophic, the shaking of the earth and mountains all through the Old Testament, all through the prophets anyway. The darkening and or the shaking of the moon, the stars, the sun and heaven, as well as images of blood. You have Isaiah 24, 1 through 6. Uh, Ezekiel 32, 6 through 8, Joel 3, 15 and 16, Habakkuk 3, 6 through 11, all through the prophets. In Isaiah 34, verse 4, listen to this passage and, and realize how similar all of this sounds when it's describing final judgment. All the host of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. You see, you see that right here in verse 14. All their hosts the sky's host, that is, will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine. Look at verse 13. Or as one withers from the fig tree. Look look at that. Look at that. It's all the way back in Isaiah. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes in in Joel 2.31. Sorry, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Verse 17. You see the same language. This is the end of everything. And we're only in Revelation 6. You see what I'm saying? We're going to keep seeing the same game from different cameras all throughout the book of Revelation. In the Isaiah text, blood is linked directly with the host of heaven wearing away or rotting. Then in verses 5 and 6 of Isaiah, it refers to God's sword being drunk or filled with blood in heaven, referring to the moon uh, becoming like blood in Revelation 6. 12. Later in Isaiah 34, in verse 12, he depicts that this judgment will fall on whom? The rulers, the kings, the great ones, which again is almost exactly the same as the first three groups of people listed as undergoing judgment here in verse 15. Back in verse 12, when the darkening of the sun is compared to sackcloth, it recalls Isaiah chapter 50, verse 3, when God will clothe the heavens with blackness and he will make sackcloth their covering. In this text, the whole sun, moon, and stars are destroyed. Again, when in contrast, only a third of them will be afflicted later in chapter 8, verse 12, telling us that we're looking at the game from a different angle when we get to chapter 8. 
which clearly doesn't refer to the last judgment since it's only affecting a third of things. And what's in the latter part of six is affecting literally everything. And the prophets were talking about it before Jesus was even born. This helps us understand where we are on God's timetable, that these catastrophes refer to the very end of all things in Revelation 6. Chapter 6 is one way to describe human history and its ending, beloved. In verse 15, again, this judgment upon everyone. Notice that. Not a portion, not a fraction. Everyone in verses 12 through 17. The sixth seal forces them to run and hide in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And here specifically, the element of their judgment being touched on is their persecution of God's people, just as they're doing in Isaiah 33.1 to 35.4. But remember this, they're also being judged for their idolatry. As in Isaiah 2.20 and 18-21, their people were fleeing to the caves and rocks because God is judging them for their idolatry. John is applying that judgment here in this text to the end of all things. In Revelation 19:18 later, these same groups of people listed here in verse 15 are said to be those that had given their allegiance to the beast. Right? And in this judgment, slaves and free are judged. In verse 15, the rich and the poor and the free man and slaves listed in chapter 13, verse 16. There they all bear the mark of the beast. Right? We, that comes later in Revelation. We find out about this group, about everyone. Those that are idol worshipers, what do they bear? The mark of the beast. Their hearts are not sealed by the Holy Spirit. They're marked by the beast. That's not an accidental microchip you're going to get implanted in your hand. All right? That's not the way it's going to work. They gave their lives to worshiping the beast. That's what they gave up their lives for. That's what they died for. Every unbeliever on the earth at the time of the final judgment is in mind here. You see this? It's comprehensive. Regardless of their status, regardless of their class, whether these descriptions are figurative or literal, right? That that doesn't make a difference here. Okay, that, that that's this is in fact the last judgment, and not merely just some of the trials that happen in the future in a final period of tribulation that 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 lead up to the grand day, right? This, there's there's not a reset after the great day of the Lord. There's not another great day of the Lord that's technically greater, right? This is comprehensive judgment. Look at their fear of God in verse 16. Look at this. Fall on us. They're saying this to mountains and rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Nobody will be able to bear up under the fury of the One who is seated on the throne or the wrath of the Lamb. Now, think of that image. Lambs are a lot of things. Scary is not one of them. Right? This isn't any lamb, beloved. This lamb was slain and he's standing alive at the right hand of God the Father. In this sense, Jesus is to be feared. Beloved, when he comes like this, 
When he comes like this, listen, there are hateable people in the world. There are hateable people in our lives. Right? There are some horrible people out there. We shouldn't wish this on anybody. And the only reason you and I aren't going to be afraid here, that we aren't going to be crying for the rocks and the mountains to fall on us, but as it says in Second Thessalonians, we'll be marveling at Him when He comes on the great day of the Lord. The only reason is because in His grace He saved us. If it's not for that, we are in this crowd. We are in verse 16, beloved. And there's nothing we'll be able to do about it. So either we abide under the altar, in the presence of God, under the blood of Christ, or the Lamb to us will be terrifying and crush us and we'll wish the mountains and rocks would have done it instead. There was just a video that popped up of uh, a group of people in Brazil uh, sailboating. Uh, it's, it's a horrible video. This, this whole probably, what, 100-foot-high shelf of rock just falls on these boats, crushes them. I think uh, two people at least that they know of were killed. And it just imagine wanting that over what you're seeing coming. Pictures of it in Revelation, I think, 19 and 20. They're even more vivid, even more vivid, more terrifying. I, I can't do it justice with words. I can't. I wish I could. I can't. Just know this. We don't want this for anybody. This is the one who has the authority and the power to actually settle all the books. This is the one that every time a single person, male or female, child or adult, was murdered for the name of Christ, every time, he ticked it off a list. Every time. So when he comes, he comes with every face, every drop of blood, burned into his mind and he's furious there's no more kindness here not for them not for them don't be in this number you don't have to be don't be in this number this is an amazing thing the idolaters by the way back in Hosea 10.8 they cried out like this they're crying out the same things this is the response. The Bible's telling us this is the normal response here in a, you know, a, a culminated way when people get found out for their idolatry. This is what they do. They hide. Where's the first instance of hiding that takes place in the Bible? Does anybody know off the top of their head? Who are the first people that hid from God? Yeah. Yeah. All the way back in the beginning, what did they do when God came down to walk in the garden? What did they do? We have to get out of here. John is being told history is going to end the exact same way it began. Hiding. God has determined sinful history to end in the same way it began once we're found out, we reveal our true colors. That's what the text is telling us. Everybody's real tough. Everybody's mouthy about God and about Jesus until God actually shows up and starts walking around. Right? My goodness, he's not to be trifled with. That's just a weak way to put it, but when, when he pours out wrath, beloved, this is God we're talking about. That you, just, you just fling a cosmos into existence by talking. Imagine his wrath. This isn't, he isn't lose. I, I, I always want to make this 
hope to try to make this point. God doesn't have a short fuse. It's not like he just decides, just doggone it, blows up and like, a, like, like a human being does, like I do often. You just blow up mad. No, no, no. This is, this is holy wrath. This is, we've never even seen it. We've never even seen it. it. It's amazing to me how badly they wanted to kill Jesus. That when he tied that cord around his hand and started flipping over tables, nobody messed with him. Do you notice that? That was their chance to arrest him. It's the week, right? It, it, depending on, you know, the, the timetable of John versus the other gospels, either and, and, you know, he either Jesus cleared the temple twice at the beginning and the end of his ministry, or John put the clearing of the temple at the beginning to make a statement about Jesus. But isn't it interesting that nobody touched him? They fled from him. Right? They fled from him. And that wasn't this. I mean, that was the chance they needed. Oh, we've got him now. Look at this maniac, right? Let's arrest him. Let's kill him. He's a problem. No, nobody, nobody wanted any of Jesus. And he was fully man and fully God. Imagine this. Imagine it. It's awful. But we'll also see, just as we saw in the very beginning when they hid, is that there is also the provision of redemption at the end for those who are saved, just as there was in the beginning. And at the very end, beloved... We're reading here, everything the dragon ever stained with his touch. All human sin will be swept away once and for all before the face of God and the wrath of the Lamb. As Dennis Johnson says, rebels from every stratum of society, from king to slave, try in vain to hide from the great day of their wrath. In verses 15 through 17, this is clearly a reference to the final judgment. That's where we are. The great day of his wrath has come. This is it. We even hear the same thing repeated in the last punishment later in Revelation 11, 18. We hear the phrase great day again in 16, 14 also in its description of the final battle, the final war. And the same event is called in Revelation 19, 17, and 18, the Great Supper of the Lamb. Because God is going to feast on the blood of rebels. There's an image. I don't want to bust that one out in Sunday school for the kids, right? But I mean, that's an image. Goodness. The Great Supper of the Lamb in 19, 17, and 18, where the same classes of people as are listed here are listed there as being destroyed and feasted on in Christ's final judgment. And I'm not being facetious about Sunday school. I don't know how you deliver news like this to the kids. I wasn't being, you know, if, if that's where you are in Sunday school class, God bless you. I don't know how we teach that to the little ones. I don't know that we should hide it from them, but that's not an image of God they get every day. And, and they shouldn't, right? But it is one of the images. So the question in verse 17, who can stand? Whether that's coming from John or from them, it looks like it's coming from them, the ones crying for the rocks to fall on them. That's the only plausible thing to say, is who can stand. When God reveals himself in wrath, the, the question is, who can survive this? Right? That's, if God unveils himself in holiness and glory, nobody's arguing with him. Nobody's you know, spouting off at the mouth at him. Nobody's arrogant. Everybody's 
screaming, let the rocks fall on me. Who can stand before this, right? No unbeliever will stand. None. Not one. Not one. Man is judged ultimately for his idolatry. Notice that in final judgment, God is literally, what is he doing here? God is destroying the physical world that Romans 1 teaches us they have worshipped, right? The creation rather than the creator. The creature rather than the creator. So what does God do? I'll destroy everything you worship. When unbelievers are referred to back in verse 10 as those who dwell on the earth, that's a, God is creating a category, right? It's a, uh, I can't think of another word for this, so forgive the, the it, it's an eschatological distinction, meaning a, a, a fulfillment, end of time type of distinction here between earth dwellers, as Revelation calls them consistently, and city of God dwellers. This has been in the Bible since Genesis, right? City builders and those who walk with the Lord and sojourn. That's been the pattern all throughout Scripture, and we're seeing it come to a head here. Genesis, Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. Beloved, we're only pilgrims here. Right? There's a reason that the destruction of the earth won't shake us, because this isn't home. Right? The homes you and I love, the hills and mountains you and I love, they're going to they're, they're gonna flee away. And, and listen... They're beautiful, no question. But they don't hold a candle to the beauty of Jesus. We aren't losing out when all these things flee away and there's nowhere for them to go. We're going to see true beauty for the first time in our lives. This isn't home to you and me. We look for the city that is to come. We're waiting for a city that actually has foundations. And what is described at the end of Revelation? (laughs) That's what measurements are about. This city is perfect, right? Will never fail. We look for the home that is eternal in the heavens that will never waste away or flee away or any of these things. God will literally bring a comprehensive end to this world and all who dwell on it. That is, called it home. This is my home. God says, and I will destroy it. God is removing their refuge because it's been polluted by their sin to the point where it literally can't last. If God wasn't decided, all right, I'm going to pull my sovereignty away and I'm not going to be in charge, we're not going to last another year as planet Earth. We, we, we won't. All earthly security will be stripped away. All that men worshipped and lauded and served will be removed. And all that have refused Him, according to Revelation 1, are going to wail on account of Him. What are they doing? They're wailing. And what does Jesus say to that? Even so, Amen. The faithful and true witness. The gentle Lamb who was slain one chapter later, is exalted over the entire cosmos. The end is coming, and nothing and no one can stop it. Listen, Revelation is not an encyclopedia for the end times. That's not its function in Scripture. It's not just a a collection of information about the end. Revelation is a very deliberate word to the church of intense encouragement 
in every age. That listen, Jesus is not only our Savior, He is also the judge of this world. Therefore, His suffering people, as they endure all this, are going to be vindicated. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Don't give up. Don't compromise. I'm coming back. And I'm going to settle every score and every book. I'm coming back. Until then, you hold the line and I will be with you. That's revelation. History is held in the hands of Jesus Christ. Every second of it. We only have time to debate these details when we ignore the point of the book. So, beloved, know this tonight. All will be well. All of it. The Lamb has triumphed. The victory belongs to the Lord. If He is ours, we have nothing to fear. It's, it's quite possible, in fact, that our suffering is actually the result of the judgment our God is pouring out on the world. Which means for us, it's ultimately, and I love this expression, it's just dust in the wake of the plowman. Right? It, of course it's happening. He's reaping souls. There's dust in that. Gets in our eyes. And I don't mean to minimize what we might suffer for the word in the name of Jesus Christ. Not in any way. I'm simply saying, we may need a more biblical gauge for measuring whether or not we're being fruitful than positive results, beloved. Rejection is also a fruit of the victory of Jesus. So, beloved, trust Him. Be patient in suffering. Know there's a resolution to rejection. It doesn't mean God is out to lunch. It may very well be our suffering, God's way of guaranteeing in our lives that He's on the throne and hasn't forgotten about us. He wants us to find ourselves here. I'm going to vindicate you. His ways just aren't our ways. See, wouldn't there be a better way to go about it? I, I, I don't know. Not if God's determined this one. Right? We just trust Him. And, and if we come and sit at the foot of Calvary where the Lamb was slain, where the righteousness of God was fully revealed in the suffering of the Lamb, I, I, I think we might see things differently in our world. As the only true and just judge, the one who is seated on the throne and the Lamb will make all things right and put an end to sin and the suffering it causes for His people. Until then, we wait patiently while trusting in His Word and obeying His call. That's what we do. There's an article. I'm, I'm almost through here. There's an article on Christian Today. That's different from Christianity Today. Please don't subscribe to that anymore and throw it in the trash. A horrible publication. But an article on Christian Today citing research done by Voice of the Martyrs and by researcher David B. Barrett in 2014. So this is seven years ago. Seventy million Christians have been martyred for their faith since the ascension of Jesus that we know about. 70 million people. Our God, how big is this number? 70 million that we know of. So listen, just as an aside, how about we stop telling believers in harder parts of the world that the real tribulation, it hasn't happened yet. They may have a bone 
to pick with us. Talking to us from a frozen meat locker in China. What tribulation is worse than death, beloved? Right? We just aren't experiencing it here, so we don't think it's coming. And it's colored the way we read the Word of God. Because we think America is the center of everything. So we, we take where God is on His timetable by America. America's not even in the Bible. We need to be aware of the times in which we now live, beloved. These are the last days. They've been calling them that since Jesus ascended. We're in these days. This number is being ticked off a body at a time, a soul at a time. Stop looking for new signs. Right? Trust the ultimacy of the exaltation of the Son of Man to the right hand of God. We have to realize how detrimental the American dream is to the call of Jesus Christ and His church. Okay? These are the last days. God's judgment has begun to be poured out. Suffering and trials for the name of Jesus have yet to reach us here in America for the most part. But it is increasingly likely that they are going to. And, and, and the world and its systems and the media are already working to divide us as a culture and therefore divide us as Christians. They're creating two sides of an aisle. Listen to what they're doing. Our country is very quickly becoming a country of vaccinated people and unvaccinated people. Don't think this isn't something meant to divide the country right down the middle. And I'm not telling you anything about the vaccine. I'm telling you, listen to what is being said. And who is saying it? What is our mindset tonight? Are we ready? Do we have a biblical understanding of fruitfulness and suffering? Are we willing to take on a posture of patience while we wait for the Lord, trusting that vindication will come later, not now? Let me let the cat out of the bag for all of us tonight. No, we're not. Neither am I. No, we're not. We're not. We're not ready. We're not ready. We need His grace tonight. We need His grace for tomorrow. We need His grace for these days, beloved, because they're the last days. Why isn't this happening here? That's the better question. Why isn't this happening here? Why aren't they killing us here? We need heaven printed on our eyelids. We need the Ohio Valley and the nations printed on our eyelids. We need the mission and the suffering of our brothers and sisters in the teeth of the beast around the world right now printed on our eyelids. These tasks, this calling has not been given only to a future unknown time or generation on the earth so that we very conveniently can just sit back like Jonah did and wait for the fire to fall. And so when we read these things, we say, boy, I wouldn't want to be here for that. What if we are? What if we're here for that right now? And we're so in love with the world, we don't even feel it. We don't even feel it. We don't believe it's the end here because we're not engaged in the fight. Right? This looks so foreign and so future to us because this isn't our reality. When North Korean believers read this, 
They see it now. Beloved, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to feel pain. I don't want to die. But like, when are we going to start asking more honest questions? Why not? Do I want to be with Jesus or not? What do I really want? What do I really love? All the things we do fight about. My goodness. We need to be the church of Scripture or we have no business calling ourselves a church, beloved. And for this, we'll need the one on the throne and the Lamb. And here's the thing. And this time, I really am almost done. All right? We have Him. We have Him. Yeah, I'm not where I need to be in my faith. But I have a great Savior. And I believe in my heart that those stories we read about martyrs and the amazing things they say right before they die and that they do, and that courage, I think that's a gift of grace in the moment, personally. I don't think anybody plans what they're going to say when the knife is at their neck. I think the Spirit just gives what we need to say. So, He'll make me ready. He'll make us stand. We'll see each other there. But let's get on the train. All right? Enough messing around with lesser things. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell Him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, His truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. 